I'm reading from Job chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever seen a picture of a place and then had the privilege of going to visit that place? Has anybody ever done that? Did the picture do justice to the experience in real life? No, it absolutely did not. I'm showing you a few pictures from an experience my family had this summer. Early summer, we went to California, went to the Sequoia National Park, and then also to Yosemite National Park. And I can't tell you, when we drove into Yosemite Valley and saw that vista with our own eyes, it was incredible. We're like, this is amazing. I've seen Thousands of pictures. How many of you have seen those Ansel Adams photographs? And you're like, wow, those are amazing. But then you see it in person. You experience it in person, and it comes to life in a new way. Well, the text I just read is part of a beautiful story, a powerful story in the book of Job, uh, which is one of the books in the Hebrew Bible. And I want to share part of it with you because I believe it will challenge you to see the dynamic nature of God in light of our static and culturally bound definitions. See, this story of Job shows him suffering tremendously after losing his possessions and his children. And not only did he lose his family and his property, but he lost his health too. Job went from riches to rags, from health to pain, sickness, and suffering. In the story, Job had three quote-unquote wise friends and one young whippersnapper come to talk to him about why they believed he was suffering. And they attempted to explain to Job why this was all happening. And they told him that he must have done something wrong to deserve what was happening to him. Job was ticked off at them, and he claimed that he was innocent. Well, in the time Job was written, the common knowledge about the relationship between the divine and humanity was one of cause and effect, or retributive justice. One's lot in life was directly related to their level of righteousness or sin. Good things happened to righteous people, and bad things happened to wicked people. This was the theological backdrop. And this motivated Job's friends to characterize him as a sinful man who was suffering as a direct result of that sin. And the reason Job pushed back against his friends was because he held their same theological convictions. Yet Job denied their claims and spoke up against God because he maintained that he was innocent. Well, towards the end of the book, God finally speaks up. God finally responds to Job. God speaks and everything changes. I don't have time to read you all of God's entire response to Job, but it's really incredible. Uh, This poetry in the Hebrew is absolutely beautiful. Biblical scholars say this is the most beautiful poetry in all of the Hebrew Bible. And there are those who would say this is some of the most beautiful poetry in all of antiquity. 
And I want to read you a little excerpt from God's response to Job. So this is from chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. See, throughout God's speech to Job, God's care for the created world is on display. God's depth of knowledge and provision for the world that Job sees and lives in is on full display. God reveals how much God cares about the earth and all that is within it. Throughout the speech, you also feel the frustration of God. God's frustrated with Job because of all of Job's assumptions. And you all know what assuming does, right? (laughs) And the address to Job, God reveals both all-sufficiency and benevolent care. The reason God is frustrated with Job's assumptions is because they mischaracterize God. If you're going to speak for God, you better do it with the utmost humility and care. And you better make sure you don't paint God as a vindictive tyrant, an authoritarian who doesn't care about people, especially those who are suffering. Now, before Job's first response, this is what God says to him. So verse uh, chapter 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, El Shaddai? Anyone who argues with God must respond. We'll talk more about that meaning of El Shaddai in just a few, mon- in just a few moments. And this is the term that God uses to self-identify with Job. Now, let's look at how Job first responded to God's correction. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Now let's go to the end of the story, chapter 42. This contains Job's second response to God. And it's important to note that Job responds in a very different way than the first. In the first response we just read, Job came to no conclusions about himself or about God. He only committed himself to be, listen, to, to be quiet and to listen. So Job's reply was timid because Job hadn't come to any sort of understanding to ease his mind about why he was suffering or, or to answer these questions about why he was suffering. Now let's look again at the end of Job's second reply, chapter 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. By the way, this reference to dust and ashes conveys lament and mourning. In Hebrew, the word for repent is nacham. Now, I want you, with all of the, the phlegm that you can muster, I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say that word to them. Nacham. Go ahead. Try it. Nacham. Nacham. That's right. That's very good. Now, I want you to give yourselves a hand because you just spoke biblical Hebrew. Very good. Very good. So the root meaning of this word is to change one's mind or reverse a decision. Of what is Job repenting or changing his mind? He's repenting of a gross mischaracterization of God. 
He is changing his mind about who God is and how God works in this world. Before, Job was lamenting over his suffering, and rightly so. But now, after having accused God of being an uncaring tyrant, he reverses his view of God. Job realizes that he has been speaking of God in a way that implied God was a prisoner of a particular way of understanding justice. It's this whole outlook that Job says he is now abandoning. And just to clarify, I don't believe that Job says he's despising himself. Rather, he despises his former and faulty misunderstanding of God. And this is the point where Job realizes how he must approach God and others. God is not cruel like Job had pictured or like Job had accused You see, God's own self-revelation showed Job that God cares enough to answer and to be present. If Job himself suffered without doing anything to deserve it, maybe there were others just like him who suffered without cause. That's a significant turn in the story and in Job's theology. There's another thing that's significant to Job's story, and it has to do with the names used for God in this book. The words El Shaddai are used 31 times throughout the book of Job as a name for God. We just sang those, those words. And oftentimes, El Shaddai is translated as Almighty. That certainly describes an attribute of God. And in certain contexts of Scripture, that's a good translation. However, if that translation is broadly applied, I believe that it doesn't accurately capture and convey God's attributes within specific biblical contexts like Job. So there are scholars who trace the origin of this word Shaddai to the root word Shad, which refers to a mother's breast. Literally translated, El equals God and Shaddai equals my breast. So El Shaddai could be translated, God is my breast. This reveals God's nurturing care and sustenance for creation. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? What a powerful image about who God is and how God cares for you and for me and for all of creation. God is both nurturing and all-sufficient at the same time. We need to know God as the nurturer and the all-sufficient one as much as we need to know God as the Almighty. Once Job saw God as God truly is, a loving, divine presence intricately involved in the midst of all that is created, I believe Job's eyes were opened to the suffering of others around him. The book of Job doesn't lay out of any any sort of specific ethic about loving one's neighbor, but I can't help but think that this this is one of the ultimate outcomes of this book, having been told, the story being told and passed down from generation to generation. You see, God chastised Job's friends and said they would be forgiven if they made sacrifices to God and if Job prayed for forgiveness on their behalf. Job did pray for them, which meant he forgave them. This opportunity for reconciliation was born because Job decided. Look at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him 
in his house. You see, in the story, Job's possessions were restored twofold, and he had ten more children after he forgave his friends. And Job's relationships were restored. These relationships were more valuable than any possession. One more fascinating thing happened in the closing of the story. Verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hepuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, what's the big deal with this? This was a patriarchal culture, and sons were the ones who typically received the inheritance in that time. Here, the daughters are named, but the sons are not. Here, the daughters are included in the inheritance along with the sons. To 21st century ears, this may not seem like a big deal. But make no mistake, this was a big deal in the time of Job. Did Job's daughters get included in the inheritance just because there were no other women as beautiful in all of the land? No. The Hebrew word used for beauty oftentimes refers to a pleasing outward physical appearance. Yet this word is also used to describe women, men, cows, and trees. So you could infer that the same word for beauty could also be, be used to describe value. I believe that Job's eyes were open to see the lives and futures of his daughters to be just as valuable as the lives and futures of his sons. Why? Because after Job saw God as God truly is, both nurturing and all-sufficient, Job saw the world with new eyes. Job saw that God loves the world. Job saw that God cares about creation and that God is with the vulnerable, the suffering, and the marginalized. Maybe Job saw that his daughters would be vulnerable one day without resources, especially in a patriarchal culture that didn't treat women as equals in any way. Job wasn't a feminist by today's standards, but he was certainly breaking new ground in his time. Job saw people with new eyes because he saw God with new eyes. Job heard God speak, and Job's new knowledge and understanding caused Job to act in new ways. When God spoke, it changed everything. For me, this is the linchpin of the message of Job, the message of Job for our time. If our ways of understanding and speaking about God do not drive us to love, compassion, empathy, and care for all those around us, especially those who are suffering or vulnerable or marginalized, then our knowledge and our speech about God are woefully deficient. We must constantly work to dismantle that which is harmful and reconstruct that which lines up with the reconciling and nurturing heart of God. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, 
I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The way Job understood God was bound to his culture and the common theology of his day. It influenced everything in his life. How has the culture and the common theology of our day impacted you? How has it impacted the way that you understand God? Have you seen God? Have you experienced God as God truly is, both nurturing and all-sufficient? Job repented of his misunderstanding of God. It changed the way he acted. When he saw God, when he heard God speak, it changed everything. Job forgave those who wronged him because he heard God speak. Job understood that he was no better than his accusing friends because he had mischaracterized God in the same way they had. Job knew that it was right and good to include his daughters in the inheritance because he saw their lives to be as valuable as those of his sons. What do you believe about God? How might God be speaking to you? Where are you feeling nudged or moved to action? Is it possible that you've misunderstood God in some way? And if so, are you willing for your mind to be changed? Are you willing to nacham, to repent, to change course, to change your mind so that your actions might display the compassion the forgiveness, the care, the embrace, the radical inclusion of El Shaddai, the God who is nurturing, sustaining, sufficient, and mighty. The way you see God determines the way you see those around you. When you see God, when you hear God speak, I believe you'll come to know God as El Shaddai, who loves the world and cares for you and cares about the vulnerable, the suffering, and the marginalized. When we see God as El Shaddai, we will see each other as God's children, loved without condition and sustained by God's nurturing care. Last week, Pastor Tracy uh, talked to us about becoming a church community that explicitly states that we welcome all of God's children into full participation in the life of this church. And as Pastor Tracy said, it might seem odd or redundant to explicitly state such a thing, but there's a good reason for this. Our United Methodist denomination has a book of discipline, and this is a book that guides and governs church practice, doctrine, and discipline. It states that United Methodist congregations should welcome everyone, yet it also says homosexual practice is incompatible with biblical teaching. We know that our LGBTQ brothers and sisters have been marginalized in many ways within our society and certainly within American church culture at large. As people who have heard El Shaddai speak, our lives have been changed. When we see our sisters and our brothers on the margins, we want to bring them into community as God's children, those who are beloved and welcomed. We want to be intentional about welcoming our LGBTQ neighbors into the life of this church. 
In a few moments, Pastor Tracy will share with us in more specific detail how we can do this as a church, how we can discern our steps forward. And she will invite us to participate in conversations where voices can be heard so that we can move forward in constructive ways. Now, there's one more direct, tangible application that I have uh, for this message, and that is Christmas in October. Uh, I'm excited about Christmas in October. So uh, through the work of our outreach committee, uh, we have a smorgasbord of opportunities uh, to meet needs and touch the lives of so many in our community and even around the world. And as your life has been touched by the nurturing and sustaining work of God, you can embody and you can reflect that gift to people who need it the most. Whether you give through money or your time, you can make a marked difference in someone's life. I invite you to please uh, take a look at this Christmas in October booklet, uh, which is out at the table in the lobby out there by the beautifully decorated table with all those cool Christmas gifts. Grab one of those booklets. Find an opportunity that matches up with what you want to do. Uh, maybe you have time to give. Maybe you have resources to give. But we'd love for you to participate in this as a way of reflecting God's nurturing care for you and giving that back away to others as well. And look for Anne and Rosemary out there in the lobby. They'll be by that table. If you've got questions, they can help you with that. Uh, they are wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for your generosity, and thanks for listening today.